now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode three of our community relations season, Just Science sat down with Dr. Nick Richardson, a research analyst at RTI's Center for Community Safety to discuss disparities in police response to cases of interpersonal violence. Addressing racial, socioeconomic, and other inequities in arrests is critical to improving community relations with law enforcement. Researchers have unearthed gender disparities in arrest statistics in cases of interpersonal violence. However, there is little data on the role race and sexuality play in these cases. Listen along as Dr. Richardson, a sociologist by training, discusses his past research on community violence and safety, as well as his study on arrest disparities in cases of interpersonal violence on this episode of Just Science. This episode is funded by RTI's Applied Justice Research Division. Here's your host, Peyton Attaway. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Peyton Attaway, with the Applied Justice Research Division at RTI International. In this season of Just Science, we analyze various research that spotlights community relations. Our topic today is disparities around law enforcement responses to interpersonal violence. Here to help us navigate this conversation is Dr. Nick Richardson, a research analyst in the Center of Policing Research and Investigative Sciences at RTI International. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Peyton, thank you for having me. Nick, could you talk to us more about your uh, current research and what interests you in this particular topic? Yeah, I think, you know, I've always been interested in the, the criminal legal system, basically all aspects of it. Originally, I wanted to become a police officer, and I had started taking courses at a local community college back home in Illinois. From there, I, I transferred to a university in, in Iowa, where I started working directly with a uh, faculty member who was a former police officer. He had been doing a lot of research on bias in police traffic stuff, which I found really interesting. And I think what interested me most about that research is how people, uh, in this case, law enforcement officers, really make decisions about interactions with citizens and make decisions about the outcome of those interactions. So in the case of traffic stop bias, we were looking at whether officers were disproportionately targeting, disproportionately stopping, citing, or searching African-American individuals compared to their uh, white counterparts. And Ultimately, we ended up finding that there was some disproportionality in traffic stop outcomes for Blacks and, and whites. In other words, Blacks were stopped more, they were cited and searched more often than whites in this particular jurisdiction in Iowa where we were uh, doing our research. And I think that there's some people who, who like to believe that the, the criminal legal system treats all individuals with equity and fairness in this administration of justice, but this is just really, it's just not true. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a long line of research documenting disparities in criminal justice outcomes that is influenced in part by, you know, one's social standing within a community or in society, uh, one's demographic background, one's class and, and other individual level characteristics. So, you know, I think that the question then becomes, you know, what is the more precise mechanisms and uh, what can really be we've done about it to, to make a, a positive change. 
Great. Thanks so much, Nick. Can you tell us a little bit about how your past research colors your current perspectives in this work that you're doing around IPV? You know, I, I mentioned I was started to take courses in law enforcement at a community college, but after my first year or so, I just decided that really wasn't for me. I kind of enjoyed the more research side of it. So I, you know, I majored in psychology during my undergrad and ended up taking a, a few sociology courses that I really think had an impact, you know, on my understanding of and and how I view the the criminal legal system. Mm-hmm. So my my graduate degree was was in sociology and criminology. And many of the courses I took really challenged the more of the stereotypical view of why people offend. You know, for example, this rational choice deterrence model that really our whole entire criminal justice system is is founded on. Mm -hmm. And it really challenged me to look hard at the social, political, and economic factors that uh, promote crime. And I think I took a lot of those theoretical perspectives, especially the more critical frameworks, and uh, applied those to my current research, including the, the current project. Can you give us more information about your current project? This project took a lot of my research interests in law enforcement decision-making and the theoretical frameworks to look at police decision-making in incidents of intimate partner violence. More specifically, I wanted to look at the, you know, these factors that go into decisions to arrest in these types of incidents and what factors seem to be more important than others. So in this case, I was really kind of comparing these legal factors versus extra legal factors and how they kind of interact with each other. And by legal factors, I'm, I'm talking more about things like the seriousness of the uh, offense. So simple assaults versus aggravated assaults, aggravated assaults being a more serious form of assault, uh, whether there was a weapon involved, whether a firearm was present, or whether a knife or some other type of weapon was present, whether a victim sustained injuries and, and the severity of those injuries. And by extra legal factors, I'm talking more about the things that really shouldn't be uh, considered in any type of decision making that would be the the sex of the victim, for example, other types of demographic characteristics, age, race, and for this project in particular, the sexual orientation of the couple. Can you talk to us a little bit about how your training as a sociologist influences your approach to this project? I think that, you know, my background in sociology really helped me look at this research question from a more social structural framework instead of placing too much emphasis on individual level processes, but noting that individual level processes are important, but you know, those, there's an interaction between the two. And I really think that having this perspective is important as policing itself can really be thought of as a highly institutionalized organization that can interact with other social institutions to influence officer behavior. Could you talk to us a little bit about what intersectionality means to you as a sociologist? And could you give us an example from your research? Yeah, so, I, I, you know, intersectionality, I think, is really central to research and sociology in general. And by intersectionality, at least it, it, to me, it's, it's really about how a, a person's social identity, a person's political identity can create different modes of not only privilege, but also discrimination. And it's really about how race, how class, how gender, as well as other individual characteristics intersect and uh, 
overlap with one another. So for example, you know, being a woman and being black do not exist independently of one another. You know, a classic example, you know, in sociology is, is looking at income, for example. So a black male and a white woman make about 74 cents and 78 cents respectively to, for every dollar a white male makes, whereas a black female only makes about 64 cents. So understanding this, you know, if you were looking at just black versus white or just male versus female, that would only tell a very small portion of the, of the story. So, you know, understanding intersectionality, I think, is important to combating these, you know, these interwoven prejudices. Normally, our Just Science podcasts are more centered around criminal justice theories and practices. Can you talk a little bit about what makes research sociological? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, what makes research in general sociological or what makes this kind of sociological is sociology compared to other disciplines. It's the study of social life of, you know, social change and the causes and consequences of human behavior. You know, from a research standpoint, sociologists study the, the structure of groups, they study the structure of organizations and uh, societies, and how people interact within those contexts, and how those contexts can shape people's individual behaviors. Nick, let's talk more specifically about your research project around IPV uh, disparities. Who did you work with on this research and what types of data did you use? A lot of this work stems from uh, my dissertation. So I, I worked pretty closely with my advisor who really helped me articulate exactly what I was trying to study and how best to empirically test my research hypotheses. Because when I went into this, the more I was reading, the more courses I took, you know, the more research I read, you know, I, I had a general idea of what I wanted to do and, and what I found interesting and what I felt was, was important, but it can be a little overwhelming, you know, trying to, you know, you have this general idea, but how do you put it in, you know, such a format to where you can spell out your hypotheses and how you can get data? Because, you know, getting data to study a lot of the stuff can be quite problematic and, and challenging as well. Can you talk us through some of those challenges in working with the data? One of the biggest challenges working with the crime incident data. So I utilize data from the FBI's National Incident-Based Reporting System, or commonly called NIBRS uh, data. It's a national data collection system that's a supplement to the FBI's uh, Uniform Crime Reporting uh, Program. One of the biggest challenges in working with those data is that it's, NIBRS is a, is a pretty complex hierarchical data file. It has multiple potential units of analysis uh, within each crime incident. For example, crime incidents. An incident is kind of like this abstract idea. It's not really a thing. It's more of like tied to time and place. But a crime incident can have multiple victims. Uh, An incident can have multiple offenders and multiple offenses, etc. Generating an analytic file and ensuring the integrity of the relationship among all the variables that I was interested in and ensuring that was preserved uh, presented a lot of a lot of challenges. Can you talk us through what some of the high level findings that struck you the most as you researched this project were? Originally, when I started, I had just thought about looking at just differences in arrest outcomes for same sex couples and opposite sex couples, Mm -hmm. which is two outcomes, you know, whether they were arrested or not. Uh, and which which one of those groups was arrested or not arrested more often. But I think that once I really started getting into the data more, looking at more of the descriptive statistics, it was becoming 
pretty apparent that not only does the, the sexual orientation of a couple seem to be an important factor in whether an incident ends in an arrest, but also the race and sex of the victim and offender uh, are also important. So in other words, you know, the, the sexual minority status only seem to be part of the story. And furthermore, these relationships became even more complex when I started looking at other different arrest outcomes. So previously, I was just interested in whether somebody was arrested or not, you know, two outcomes, but really there's three. An incident might end where nobody's arrested. It could end when one person's arrested or when both people are arrested. And when I started looking at, you know, all three of these arrest outcomes, you know, other disparities really began to emerge. Were there any surprising findings in this study? I think that there were a few. Um, the finding that I, I think that I thought was, you know, more probably one of the more surprising ones was that that the likelihood of no arrest was higher, that an incident not ending in arrest was higher for African-Americans and for same-sex couples than it was for uh, whites or for opposite-sex couples. I think that was kind of an interesting uh, finding. So your research highlights differences in likelihood of arrest for African-Americans and same-sex couples. What are the policy implications of these findings? I was finding was that Black lesbians and, and Black gays were much more likely to experience a dual arrest than their white counterparts, but also more likely to have their an incident and in no arrest as well. It really gets at this because clearly there was there were some disparities there. Uh, and these findings were consistent for dual arrest and for no arrest. You know, the magnitude of the effect was greatest for black lesbians for dual arrest and also greatest for black lesbians for no arrest. It gets at this question, you know, I, is there a right amount of arrest? Not arresting either individual, especially when there is a clear victim and offender, you know, may send the message to not only the offender, but the community that domestic violence is not a sufficiently serious problem to warrant an arrest. So it's not really serving as a, neither a specific nor general deterrent. However, you know, utilizing arrest too often, as in the case of dual arrest or even a single arrest, when it is not warranted, can have just as serious consequences. Arresting and incapacitating a victim may dissuade him or her from calling the police if a future assault were to take place. You know, and there's a lot of negative consequences associated with arrest, loss of employment, you know, anxiety, depression, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, loss of family and friends. And in the case of dual arrest, if there's children present and both parents are arrested, the kids may be separated from their parents and, and placed in foster care or sent with other family, you know, and although this is, you know, maybe a short-term option and it might be appropriate in, in some instances, you know, witnessing the arrest of one's parents may be an extremely uh, traumatizing event for, for kids. With this in mind, is there a quote-unquote right amount of arrest? Uh, yeah, I, I think that it should only be used in the most extreme circumstances, well, only when there is there's an immediate threat. Because of the reasons I said, you know, arresting somebody is it's a very serious. It's, it's extremely serious and, and can, can do more harm than good. Right. It can have detrimental effects on someone's life that can, you know, affect generations in that family. Absolutely. And, you know, at least for my research, I was not really ever trying to suggest whether there is a right amount of arrest. I think what I was, the goal of mine was that if an arrest occurs, there should be equity in that. You know, we shouldn't see these differences. 
if same-sex couples are treated equally, then there should be no significant differences in arrest outcomes for same-sex couples and opposite-sex couples. But that was clearly not the case. Can you talk us through some of the limitations of your research? Just because of the nature of the data, I was unable to really test many of the specific theoretical mechanisms for the reasons why same-sex couples may be more likely to experience differential outcomes. I was unable to control for some variables that may have been associated with increased risk of arrest. This could include, I didn't have data on prior criminal behavior. So if uh, an offender had a criminal record or whether there was children present or other witnesses present. Also, NIBRS data are not really generalizable to all jurisdictions. Even though it's a national data collection system, uh, only a percentage of all agencies in the United States actually submit NIBRS data. I think at the time, the data that I used for this, about half of agencies in the U.S. were submitting NIBRS data. NIBRS reporting agencies at that time tend to be skewed towards smaller or mid-sized law enforcement agencies. Nick, what are the next steps for this research and your work in this area? You know, I still find this topic, intimate partner violence, really interesting. And, uh, you know, obviously it's an important area of study. Uh, I've really been interested lately in rural crime in general, but more specifically, in the differences in characteristics of intimate partner violence in rural versus urban communities. Obviously, IPV occurs in all areas, but it's qualitatively different in rural areas versus urban areas. And I think, you know, understanding that is is important to developing, you know, policy and strategies to to mitigate those harms. Definitely. I think the rural aspect is so interesting and it's so understudied. So I'm excited to hear that you're looking more into that. So are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I just think that, you know, all people, obviously, they have the fundamental right to, to fairness and equity and, you know, in the administration of justice. And it should really hold true regardless of an individual's race or, or sexual orientation. And when specific groups or individuals are not treated fairly in comparison to other individuals or groups, it's, it's not really justice. Thank you so much, Nick. So that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Nick Richardson, for sitting down with Just Science to discuss law enforcement responses to interpersonal violence. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. I'm Peyton Adway, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science sits down with RTI's Dr. Mike Planty to discuss emerging technologies in law enforcement. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Mm-hmm.